Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. On this episode of the LOL Pod, my guests, Dr. Rosalind Brown Beatty and I talk about grief and all of its complexities. Let's jump in. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Super excited to have a conversation with my guest today. I have Dr. Rosalind Brown Beatty. She is the owner of Brown Beatty Counseling and Consulting and the director of clinical mental health counseling at Union Institute and University. Hi, Dr. Roz, how are you? Hello, I am great. Excited to be here. Excellent. Thank you for being here. So I'm going to start with you like I do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? I have been thinking about this over and over because of course I listen to your podcast and everybody has like these amazing answers. So I'm like, what's going to be my labor of love? And when I think about what my labor of love, it is being able to see people for their full authentic self their future, and being able to encourage them um, on their journeys. And so whether it is as a counselor, as a professor, being able to see someone's potential and reminding them of their potential, especially during the hard parts of the journey, um, I really like to be there in that piece. Um, And so I think that's my labor of love. Beautiful. Thank you. And that answer was great. (laughs) It's funny how many people are like, Oh, that's a really good question, right? Um, And so seeing people Mm -hmm. at their most authentic selves, being able to identify and pull out that resilience and things that oftentimes people don't see themselves. Tell us a little bit about where this is rooted for you. How did you come um, come to a place where this has been important to you, important enough to dedicate so much of your life to it? Oh, how much time do we have? And so back when I was a little girl, (laughs) I love it. Back when I was a little girl, um, I was different. I was very different. Um, And my sisters will attest to this. I grew up with four sisters, um, strong, powerful sisters. And I call them, they were like the stallions. Um, They took things in stride, the way that they viewed things. but we had a different lens that we looked at things. And so I kind of call myself the unicorn amongst some stallions. And so with that, we, and just like everybody else growing up, there's different events that happen and people will be like, "Mm, I ain't like this. I ain't like that. I'd be like, but do you remember that we got ice cream that day? You know, kind of like this positive lens. And my sisters are kind of like, we love you, but you're a little weird. Um, And so even like we may go through the exact same experience, I would look at things as being extremely positive. I couldn't take my eye off of the rainbow. I just couldn't. And so then even growing up um, and being an an adult, there would be things that were going on with my friends and they would go through a breakup and I'd be like, well, what lesson can you learn from that? And Mm -hmm. so of course they're like, Rosalind, I ain't trying to talk about, you know, what lesson I could have learned from that. I'm struggling. And so at first I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I take off this positivity? And so I knew that I wanted to be a counselor um, from a very early age after watching an episode of Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so on Sally, Jesse, they had this kid that was like really bad. I'm going to just say bad. We know we're supposed to call kids bad, but he was bad. And so, you know, he was cussing, you know, knocking some stuff around and they had this therapist come out and did a little bit of talking and then over the commercial break when they came back this kid was perfect I mean just had great manners talking to their mom different and I was like that's it that's what I want to do I want to be the person to come in during the commercial break and change everything and Mm -hmm. so it kind of went along with this optimism that I had but of course life happens and I'm like you know what you can't just only see the rainbows you can't 
you could keep your eye on it, but you have to learn how to sit with people in their storm. And so I had to learn how to keep my gift of being able to be the unicorn and to see the rainbows and really to sit with people within their journeys of time of despair, um, learning that professionally, but also personally too. That's awesome. I really appreciate that. And yeah, it's that balance, right? I remember when I first heard the term toxic positivity. Um, and I was like, what is that? And, and, you know, you know, just kind of looking at the lens when, when we don't let people have all of their feelings, their very authentic uh, experiences. And, and yeah, I, I like that because I too, definitely, I believe have a, a very strong lean towards optimism, the positive, the silver lining, um, being able to say, but here is something that has come out of that, but that balance of being able to also be with myself and people during, uh, during some of the times was like, I don't want to smile right now. <laughs> we can talk lessons later right now. I want to be mad, yes. you know, or I want to be yes. sad. So I really appreciate that. Um, and so when you kind of came to this realization that, you know, you need to learn to sit with yourself and others in this. What, what was that like for you adjusting your, you know, your lens, your rainbow filtered lens? What was that experience and process like for you? I, <clears throat> I had to really shift my thinking. Um, also to kind of based on my own personal experiences, because I also had people who looked at me because I was this, this extremely positive person that when I was going through my own storms, they just kind of leaned into my, leaned into my, you know, oh, she's going to be positive. You'll be fine. She'll get through that. She's strong. And so during that process, it even was just kind of like my awakening to say, how would I have wanted someone to sit with me in these moments? That's powerful. You know, I do think that when we have, I just, so what it reminds me of is for me, how many people have gone through different experiences? And I don't necessarily mean like traumatic. I just mean experiences before me and I had no concept of what they were going through. Then I go through it and I'm like, oh yeah, I probably could have been a much better friend, <laughs> right? Like uh -huh. having children, right? So when yes. my friends like uh -huh. had kids, you know, it's like, oh, that's cool you know, I had no concept of understanding what parenting was. Then I'm like, oh, shoot, I probably could have been a much better <laughs> friend to them friends that had kids or, or completing grad school. Like, oh, yeah, I probably. <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. when we go through, but I do think that, you know, if, if all of us can be very intentional and be like, how would, how, what did I need? in this space? What do I need in this space? And then mm -hmm. kind of just keeping that mental library um, or inventory so that we can then be helpful um, to people. To be fair, it doesn't mean everyone's going to want the same things we want. It's not, doesn't mean right. everyone is going to have this, the experience the same way we did, but I do think it's helpful. And so let's talk a little bit about um, your your specific brand of therapy. So I will say, you know, I um, refer to Dr. Roz all the time. Um, and, and, and that's also a lot of people, I mean, one, they just want good help and good therapy. And uh, that's why you're one of the people I refer to a lot. And there are a lot of people who want a black therapist. And so that mm -hmm. also, you know, um, it means I refer to you a lot as well, but I talk about how I do therapy all the time and everyone doesn't do therapy the same. So talk to us a little bit about how you bring that ability to see people um, in their authentic selves and help them kind of grow in that as part of what you do in your therapy work. Yes, um, and so the work that I do with clients and what I try to make the experience is one of number one, being safe, two of being trauma informed, because we are going to talk about trauma. Oh boy, are we going to talk about trauma? We're going to talk about the neuroscience of the brain, but also three, and most importantly, I'm an educator. And so I don't want to be the expert sitting in the room. 
my goal is to make sure that the client also becomes the expert. And so one of the first things that I tell clients as soon as they come, that your job is to put me out of business. And so I don't want that every time that something comes up, they think, you know what? I got to contact Dr. Oz. What I want to happen is, is that we're having this exchange. We're having this dialogue that when something happens again and they're not in therapy, they're able to refer back and say, you know what? This is my trauma brain coming online. Here are some old responses that are coming up. Oh, but here are the skills that I learned to be able to learn how to work through that. And so with that, and again, it's kind of like the educator in me. I want to make sure that my clients know just as much as me about counseling, about trauma, about resilience, about how they make those changes into their lives and having a very realistic perspective about, you know, that they have the capability to be able to navigate their lives with me in it, but then also without me in it. That's so good. Um, very similar to... I say all the time, my, my goal is to work myself out of a job, right? Mm -hmm. And as, as awesome as you think I am, you're going to realize that you don't have to come and pay me in order to mm -hmm. get the same experience you're getting because you're going to build that for yourself. So I absolutely love that. And that is, um, that's, a, that's sometimes a challenge for people. I remember um, when I went natural and my hair and I got to a point where I was getting up out the chair and my stylist was like, so I'll see you in about eight weeks. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? What you mean though? <laughs> I don't understand what we're saying here. Why would I go two months without seeing you? And she's like, cause you know how to take care of your hair. You don't need to come back and sit in the, like, you know, and I'm just like, no, like she wasn't ready. <laughs> I wasn't ready. And sometimes I think people go into counseling because it's one of the safest relationships many people literally have ever had, they don't want to let it go. But teaching people how to have safe relationship with themselves is one of the things that we do so that they no longer feel like it is the only safe place. And so I absolutely love that. So what, um, who do you work with? You know, what kind of clients, uh, what demographics do you work with? I always want to say everyone. Um, <laughs> I like to say everyone, but it seems like a lot of people that find me um, are the strong ones, the quote unquote strong ones, the ones who are the go-getters, the one who stand in the gap for everyone else to make sure they inspire and that they encourage everyone else, but somehow along the way, forget about themselves. And so that can be women who are working in different professional positions. That could be men who have families who are recovering from trauma. That can be marriages who are those, that team and that dream team that the goal couple um, who are being the inspiration for everyone else. That can be the team that is doing well at school, but struggling inside as well. Um, but I really like to say that I, I work with the strong ones and I give them a space to not be strong and to be able to focus on themselves. That's awesome. 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 So where I want to segue now and talk about, um, I'm really excited to have this part of the conversation because I think it's going to be very eye-opening for so many of my listeners. And um, I would love for you to share and for us to discuss what life is like being a widow. Um, because you are a widow. And, you know, when I was talking to Dr. Roz about wanting to talk about this, I said, I can be honest, when I hear the word widow, I think you got to at least be like 68 and a half years old, um, you know, or, <laughs> you know, that your marriage lasted probably about 25 to 35 years. And then all of a sudden your spouse, you know, widow or widower, you know, and then your spouse died um, from natural causes, you know, or some illness, like there, mm -hmm. there is this very specific prescribed thing I have in my head about what a widow or widower is or looks like. Um, and, and where does that come from? From everywhere that our, our perceptions come from past experiences, usually media, right? Um, and when you don't have experiences with something or someone 
firsthand, your brain just reaches for the most convenient narrative, which is the one that's often given to it the most. But I know that's not true. And so can you start by just giving us a little bit of information, enough that you feel comfortable with to tell us your story to widowhood? Is that a word? Widowhood? Yes. Okay. If, if not, we're going to make it a word. It's, it's one today, y'all. <laughs> yes. Um, and ironically, it's a story that I like to tell um, because I feel like my purpose is also to transform the way that we see grief. Mm-hmm. And so um, y'all just going to hear all my business today. So we're going to take it back a little bit to when I was about, you know, five or six. It's one of my earliest memories. And I remember... Um, the concept of death used to just terrify me. And it was just one night I thought about like, oh my gosh, the possibility of just not existing. And like many people who have grown up in some traditional black households, I was having like these panic attacks at night, but I could not go wake my mama or my daddy up and say, hey, by the way, um, I'm having some issues over here. And maybe I could have, I had to say that because they may listen to this, but um, in my head, I could not go wake them up. So I just kind of dealt with it in silence. And so sometimes I would scream into my pillow silently. And then it was just like, okay, just don't think about it. And so that became my model when it came to thinking about death. Don't think about it. You know, have your little panic attack, then don't think about it. And so even kind of growing up and being in grad school, so you have to learn about all these theories and techniques. And then there's this one called existential theory, which focuses a lot on, guess what? Death and your purpose in the world and, you know, what happens after death. And so even in grad school, I learned just enough to pass the test. And I say, you know what? I'm never going to work with anybody with grief because this is not my thing. I ain't talking about death. No, thank you. And so, you know what, I go through schooling and, and all that, that fun stuff, and I meet the man of my dreams. Um, absolutely loved and adored me. My friends joking um, would say, they're like, girl, he would drink your dirty bath water. I mean, because like, he loved me, like loved me, loved me, and saw me authentically. And he got sick. He got sick and he needed a liver transplant and he had a rare autoimmune disorder that attacked the liver, primary sclerosing cholangitis. And I remember at first they said that if you don't have this transplant, you won't see your daughter turn three. And so that made our decision. He was going to have the transplant. I was going to be by his side. We were going to rock it. And so, you know, we were, we were that couple. We were the couple that people said, oh, goals. That was us. And so we were navigating that. And I'm like, he's going to be okay. And we don't think about death. And so that's not even an option. Well, there's a rare chance that PSC can come back. He was in that percentage of having the chance of PSC coming back. And so then they said that he's going to need a second transplant. And so they said, it's going to be difficult this time. And there's a strong chance that he may not make it. Well, for me, I'm like, well, that doesn't happen because number one, I don't think about death. And you know what? I'm just going to have faith. And that's not my story. And, you know, at this time, we got two little girls. And so that's not going to happen to us. And it was Christmas Eve, 2016. Um, He had just got out the hospital on the 22nd. His birthday was on the 23rd. Christmas Eve, we are at home. The girls just finished wrapping gifts. We're wrapping gifts and something felt different. And I remember my daughter, seven at the time, she came in and she said, mommy, is daddy gonna be okay? And for me, every single time that she always asked that before, my answer was yes, because he got good doctors, he got good nurses, mommy's on top of his medication regimen, you know what, you know, everything's going to be fine. But this day, it just felt so different that I had to say, I don't know. And so both girls were in the other room, we were in the living room. And I saw a glazed look on his eyes and I just said, I'm gonna call 911. 
and he shook his head yes. And from there, I called my sister. Um, she lived literally one minute away. I said, you need to come over here. I need you to come sit with the girls. And on Christmas Eve, 2016, my husband died on the living room floor. Um, and so I also say that to share kind of back to your sentiments. Sometimes when we think of widows, we think of, you know, these women who have, or men who have had a lifetime with each other. And I, I'm the face of a widow and I'm not the exception. There is an entire community of us who are here as young widows. Sometimes we see feel seen, a lot of times we don't feel seen. Um, but I think part of my journey also is to be able to give insight into the journey of widowhood um, and also talk about how we look at grief and support those who are grieving. Um, so much, we are gonna get there, but can I thank you for sharing, first of all, so much and just how um, I appreciate your, your craft as a storyteller. Um, as I'm sure my listeners will, and just how that that slight moment where my heart just stopped, like, oh, wow, right? I also think that there, I don't know, we most people just don't have this perspective of my loved one died spontaneously at home right in front of me kind of thing and so mm -hmm. you know that's just a you know because then I'm thinking oh okay so we went to the hospital you know we have all of these things and our brains will fill in the gaps I tell people all the time your brain makes up stories that's what it does and it is not really um, concerned about being accurate it just wants to give you a story and so I appreciate that um, your sharing just just starts to give us other information that that can fill in some of the gaps and so um, before we talk broadly about grief, um, mm -hmm. can you talk to us a little bit about your grief, your daughter's grief? Um, they were seven and how old? And, and three. Seven and three. So what mm -hmm. was, and, and, and to, to, to further, I love that you keep coming back. I didn't think about death. So it's not mm -hmm. like you had thought of, I mean, from five years old, you were resigned. Mm -hmm. Nah, Chief, we ain't thinking about that, right? So it exactly. became this improbability because it didn't get any space. So this was this was a lot. You know, it would have been a lot, I think, for anyone. But to someone who had very mm -hmm. purposely and intentionally set out for all the rainbows, was this unicorn? Yes. And it's like positivity. Uh, no, death is uh -huh. not a thing that we're going to think about. And then- exactly the love of your life dies. Can you just tell us a little bit about what, what grieving was like for a person who did not acknowledge the need for grief through death prior to that event? Mm -hmm. um, it was a challenge in many ways because not only was I navigating my own grief, I had a seven and a three-year-old who had to navigate their grief. And um, I would say it was kind of twofold. And so in the beginning, honestly, I kind of distracted from my own grief because then my goal was, is that I got two little girls that are, were complete daddy's girls that I have to make sure that are okay. And so in order to make sure they're okay, I also have to be okay because the way that they watch me um, is like a hawk. And so with that, it was like, nope, you got to go through this. You got to go through the grit and pain and the numbness and the sadness and the confusion and the anger and all of this because you have to be the example to your girls. And so the one thing about my girls, when people used to ask me at first what I wanted to be when I was growing up, it was a mommy. And so, you know, then I was like, no, this is like, this is my number one job. Like I got to do this right. And then also as a therapist, I'm like, okay, what can I do now to prevent my kids from having to go to therapy later? And so I really got to like be on it on top of this grief process. And so for me, um, personally, 
during that first year, it was a lot of numbness, but also making sure that I showed up for my kids. Now, also too, because a lot of people, when they think about grief and when they think about widows or you know, kid, people who have lost their parents, they do think of people being older. So during this process, I also had to teach people, not really even more so how to support me in my grief, but how to support my kids in their grief. And that became my focus. Mm-hmm. And so what were some of those insights? You know, I think that could be very helpful for me, for the listeners, if, you know, particularly, right, let's think about March 2020 to present, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about half a million people plus have died because of the coronavirus mm-hmm. and COVID-19, not to mention people who are continuously dying because people die (laughs) and that's Mm -hmm. part of life. And there are so many now um, scenarios that we didn't necessarily have in this this abundance. So what would Mm -hmm. you say to people who there are children or or young people or newly wed or soon to be wed uh, people who have lost their loved ones? What are some of those tips for supporting grief? My number one um, thing that I'm going to say and will always go back to is be their village. Be their village. Now, one thing that we know about the brain too, the brain strives on connection, connection with others. And so you have to make sure that you are going to be a part of the village. Now it may be in different roles. So even for example, um, with my kids. Now, when I even talked to my daughter's teacher, um, I remember how when she sent me a message and she was like, you know, Madeline was, was crying today in school. So I gave her some chocolate. And I was like, okay, that's great. You know, a little dopamine from the chocolate, that's okay. But I'm gonna send Madeline to school with a journal And so in those moments that she's kind of missing her daddy, if you can let her go to a corner also to be able to write down how she's feeling, draw a picture, and then just check in on her. Ask her, what did she draw? Ask her, let her have the opportunity to share if she feels like sharing. Um, And so even with myself, my my Facebook community, they also became my village unknowingly. And so I overshare on Facebook. I'm that person. And so people will see that hashtag widow rants and hear all of my stories about being a widow, the good, the bad, um, and everything in between. But knowing that there are people who actually care and who are invested, that makes the journey more bearable. That's so good. So one, I want to point out this idea that can be specifically around grief, but I, I, I want to expand that. Like we, and we can talk about this in a minute because I feel very strongly. We are an under grieved culture. We don't know yes. how to grieve. We avoid grieving and we think that grief is only reserved for death. And so we walking around constipated proverbially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's because we're not grieving. But before we specifically go there, the advocating for our children um, when they're in school, for example. And I think sometimes we, we general, we have this idea that teachers, educators, administrators, they know everything. They, they, when my kid is in school, they should know how to do school. Well, the reality is, there are so many different kids. And so I even find with my kids in preschool and even my son being able to have that communication and say, hey, this teacher might not know the, the specific thing that's gonna help my child, but let me, let me, give, let me help you out. <laughs> and how grateful they have been because they're like, oh, so now I don't have to go to Sam's and buy that big old thing of Hershey Kisses because what she actually doesn't need is chalk. Oh, that's very helpful. And so I love that. So whatever, you know, if your child or your family has come across a hard time, communicating that can be very, very important. You know, mm-hmm. this just happened, here's what's going on. And, and I think particularly in the black community, many of us grew up with what happens in this house stays in this house. Don't be out there telling everybody my bi- your business. Mm-hmm. And so we, we get really kind of um, tight-lipped about things. But when people don't know what's going on, and again, 
you don't have to give people all your business to let them know here, our family is going through something and my child might have moments where they lose focus, where, you know, they just need, what do they need? And, and being able to advocate in that way, I think that is super beautiful. And the village, um, I was 24 when my father died. Is that right? 23, 24. I think I was 24. It was the year after I got married the first time. And um, while he had been sick my whole life, uh, it wasn't expected, right? And and that, that was pretty young. I didn't feel like it was young because boy, I, I felt like I was like, 45 when I was in my early 20s, reclaiming my youth, y'all, hashtag reclaiming my youth. But what was interesting to me was how many people were there during the immediate grief? More chicken than you can eat, more people than you can spend time with, just surrounded, right? Just surrounded by people, my mother and I, surrounded, 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 surrounded so much that we didn't have private moments. I remember my grandmother, who's my mom's mom, it's like she didn't give us a moment alone, literally. She was just there like waiting for this. So Roz, we would have been great candidates to be your client. My mother and I, we were the strong ones, right? I look back now and realize how neither one of us would cry because we were being strong for each other. We didn't know that at the time, but you know, I was being strong for her. She was being strong for me. And, and my grandmother was just waiting, holding her breath for one of us to have a breakdown. And we're just like, and, and so many people and so much food and so much care. Um, then of course my grandmother was the one who broke down at the funeral. <laughs> and and it, it's like, she was waiting on us first, you know, and just this whole thing and we were fine. I can remember the two or three tears that escaped my eye, you know, when I first saw his body and, and I spoke at his funeral, this whole thing. <clears throat> but then like the food left, the food no longer came, right? And, and the people, now I'll be, I'll be honest, my mom has some amazing people in her life, right? She, she, there were people who, though the masses left, she still had people um, who were around, but those were my mother's people. I didn't even live in the same place. And I had friends who came like high school friends because I wasn't ever moved from high school really. And I hadn't seen in a few years and they were there, but you know what? I left that city and I was all alone because I was in a marriage where I wasn't emotionally safe. So I realized sometimes people can go back home and grieve, but then I couldn't grieve at home. And so I just realized like the importance of a village. I did not have. Now, part of that is because Shonda is the strong one, right? Oh, she's going to mm -hmm. be fine. She's good. My mm -hmm. God. Like she just kept going. Nothing stops her. Da, da, da. The whole narrative that I was very complicit in unconsciously and this is part of my trauma but you know perpetuating but I didn't even know what the word vulnerable meant because I didn't have okay. safety to be vulnerable but man that's hard it's hard so that whole hashtag check in on your strong friends like it's not just a it's not just a, a social media gimmick right there there's mm -hmm. so much happening because the strong ones quote unquote oftentimes it's a trauma response I'm gonna go ahead and put yeah. that on record you got a problem with it come on we can talk about yes. it it's true yes. it's how we learn to navigate the world yes. and so when we look and we go my goodness she's so strong or he's so strong or yeah but we too need people to be safe for us to just be and and I I think you know that is that is so important and you know it took me girl I don't even know probably <laughs> I mean I don't know a decade to realize I hadn't actually grieved I went to mm. a funeral I did. Mm -hmm. And some of us go, I went to a funeral. I've grieved, but mm -hmm. I did not grieve. I don't know if my mother's fully grieved. 
you know, yeah. and those things. So for those of us with the compacted, I call it constipated because people get the visual, um, <laughs> this compacted, constipated, ungrievedness that we carry in our bodies, what, what do you say to us and to those of us who don't even sometimes know that we haven't grieved? What, 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 what do we do about that? exactly what you just did tell your story mm. because with grief there also comes this numbness now the numbness is helpful because in the beginning you got to plan a service you got to write an obituary you got to get the pictures for the slideshow and you can't feel those feelings and do all that work but then there becomes this point where that numbness has to wear off and part of that is telling your story. Because sometimes, you know, you can tell the story and it doesn't hit you until the magnitude of actually it coming out of your mouth and saying it and allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Does it even resonate? Because at first I could, you know, first when I told the story, I would sob. And then I would tell the story and I would be numb. And then I would tell the story of my grief journey. And then it would be like, whoa, like, that's a whole lot. Like, sheesh. And going through that and giving myself an opportunity to tell my story, it means that I have to explore my grief. And there's also to another word that you mentioned too, that piece of being vulnerable. Because the thing is, is that typically we, we grieve, but we keep it to ourselves. And so I kept telling myself, okay, what do I want to learn from my grief experience? I want to change the way that people are able to see grief and to be able to support people who are grieving. But that reminds, that reminds me that I have to be emotionally vulnerable and I gotta have some emotional diarrhea <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. to really be able to say like, this is the experience. This is my experience of loss. But let me tell you too about the experiences of secondary loss. Let me tell you about, you know, not only do I have to think about, okay, what's Christmas going to be like? I got to think about when my babies are getting older. I have to think about the birthdays. I have to think about when, you know, my sixth grader has her first crush and, you know, she don't got that information from daddy to be able to say it, but only from my lens. And so it's just kind of like those other areas, but I have to talk about it because if not, people will just view me as the strong one and they won't see the emotional piece behind what goes on. What's my experience? What life is like, you know, the parts that a lot of people don't, tell out loud, I kind of like, well, if somebody got to be the example of telling it out loud, I guess it's going to be me. There's a unicorn, right? Yes. <laughs> and it, it, yes, telling your story, being vulnerable. I love that. Another part of grief that I think is important to talk about that I experienced more recently is I think I'm not alone in this view I had. There's like, I mean, I knew the person, but I wasn't like their wife or their child. So we sometimes distance ourselves from grief because we don't think we're entitled to grieve people because we weren't the closest to them. And, and, you know, I like, I hear it coming out of my mouth and I'm like, that's ridiculous, but it's so real. It is so real. So um, this year, this month in, in less than two weeks will be um, <clears throat> two, three years, two, Jesus, what, what year is this? This is 2021, right? Okay. Two years mm -hmm. um, since my husband's mother died. And when I say it rocked me, it rocked me. However, I wasn't her real daughter. So mm -hmm. I just was like, okay, I need to step back. I need to let my husband, I need to let his sisters. I mean, she was one of 10. I need to let her sibling. It was this whole thing. Like just something in me was like, I don't, I don't get 
to grieve. And so, you know, I can grieve, you can cry a little bit, you know, but I muscle up, you become the strong one and you do all these things. And I remember, um, I, I don't know if that was March, maybe early summer, I went in for one of my yearly intensives because, you know, <laughs> I like intensity. So I go to these intensive therapy weekends and, you know, we're working on something else and, and then it hit and then it emerged. I had not grieved and I was just blocked up because I hadn't grieved. And when I say I screamed, I cried, I cussed, I yelled, I was so angry that she was gone. And it's like, you know, sometimes we, we, we feel that, but then we don't feel we can grieve. So then it turns into something else, right? Mm -hmm. So you walking around mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're like, I got an attitude. What is wrong with me? Why? Yeah. Goodness. You know, I just been snippy lately. I don't like people. Mm -hmm. People get on my nerves. <laughs> grief, <laughs> you know? Yes. Oh goodness. I don't feel like it. I used to like doing this, but now I don't. Grief. Like mm -hmm. grief will disguise itself into yes. whatever we will let out. And if we're willing to let the anger out, well, it'll be like, well, shoot, let me put on this hat and become anger because I got to get out. And I realized mm -hmm. that I, and, and, and to be fair, my husband and his sisters, they're different than me. Their grief looks different. Everyone's grief can look different. So I'm just mm -hmm. waiting on the moment. Now I realize literally in this conversation, I was doing what my grandma was doing. I think she was lingering, mm. hanging around because she wanted to just get a glimpse of us, mm -hmm. the two, his two, who got to grieve, let it out. So then she could let it out mm -hmm. and it, and, and we didn't give yes. it to her. <laughs> and so she, it, it just yes. overwhelmed her at the funeral. But once I did that, I realized it's, it's not a pie. You know what I mean? I didn't mm -hmm. take too much of the pie. So then they couldn't. And I just remember coming home and said, you do what you do, but I'm about to grieve this woman that I loved. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I, I don't need permission and, and, and all of this. And he's just like, okay, okay. Right. But it, it is. Yeah. And so grief you know, it can be that person that you weren't the closest to, but can also be a person yes. you never met. It can be yes. the future you thought you were going to have. And now you realize because of circumstance, it won't go in that direction. It can be so many things that if we just mm -hmm. allow ourselves to just mm -hmm. say, let me just have an authentic experience. What comes up, comes up. What comes out, comes out. And that's where mm -hmm. the village becomes yes. very important because in the village, people aren't going, what's wrong with you? People are going, okay, okay, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, what do you need? But sometimes I don't know what I need. Yeah. And so yeah. people to be able to be like, okay, like we gonna handle this. We, we gonna take care of it. And most of all, you get to be, period. You know, I think that yeah. that's super important. And so it has so many faces and in so many degrees that if there, I mean, tons of things to grieve, but 2020, y'all, yeah. it wasn't just a pandemic. We were then still. And so then we got a very up close and personal look at the racial injustice that happens in our country. It ain't new, wasn't yes. nothing about it new. We were just less distracted. Right. But not only mm -hmm. were we able to tune into that, we were able to tune in to the responses of it and the ignorance yeah. of the responses of it because we were less mm -hmm. distracted and that, that stays in our body. So Dr. Ross, talk to us a little bit about grief in the body. People think, I, I know that Ooh. a lot of people think that grief is just in your head or in your heart mm -hmm. is tears, but this stuff is in our bodies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. The body keeps score. Ooh. And so, you know, it's, it's stored within our, our DNA, literally stored within our, our sales. And so, you know, being mindful, and this is where I like to talk to a lot of to people about, you know, the secondary loss and those secondary experiences from grief. And so, of course, now around, um, Christmas, everybody is on me like a hawk. 
they're just kind of like, oh, we about to check in on you. We about to come. We about to smother you with some love because we also know that, you know, that's going to be a trigger for you. That's going to be, you know, a grief experience. But also too, you know, I'm a little over four years out and speaking of that, the chocolates earlier. And so I completely forgot about the chocolates until it was Valentine's Day. And I get the girls like their little baskets with gifts and a book and all my displays of love for Valentine's Day. And I got some Dove chocolates. And my daughter said, mommy, you know, these are what Miss Ramos gave me when I was sad about daddy. And so I was like, oh, okay. Let me wipe this tear from my eye. Um, <laughs> but then I also had to be mindful like, oh, okay grief can resonate with my baby right here. And so let me make sure that I'm showing up, you know, in those moments that grief may resonate. Um, also too, realizing that other experiences may wake up the grief that's stored within your sales. And so last year, you know, speaking of the horrific 2020, when Kobe Bryant died, a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, Kobe, oh my gosh, Kobe. And I was like, Vanessa. Yes. And so, you know, even every response that was on her Instagram page, because I had to follow her right away. And then it was just kind of like every response and how people were caring and how people understood. I was just kind of like, oh, I remember that. And then I kept thinking, I'm like, oh, I wonder if she's numb because you're numb in the beginning. I'm like, oh, I remember when I was numb. And, you know, where are people going to be when the numbness rubs off? And so thinking about how there can be so many experiences, whether it's your own personal experience or even from people around you that may awaken that grief. And again, that's why it's important to have that village because also like, for example, my daughter's birthdays, my sisters, the stallions, they step in. Most people have no idea, but my kids' birthdays rip me apart in my grief. Because I have to think about like, their dad is not here. Like they are getting older and their dad is not here. But most people will be like, okay, I'm gonna check in on you on your anniversary, around Christmas time. These are things that we know. But then the other part of my community, oh, they get it. Like, okay, birthdays, that's hard for her. The other piece too, is that, you know, even with my kids putting their village in, in place, you know, part of me was like, Oh man, and number one, we a family full of women. There's a couple guys in there, but we a family full of women. I'm like, I need for them to have strong black male role models. And I remember sharing that information with a, a barber at that time. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He's like, well, let me tell you about this guy that does chess lessons and he does life experiences and he's a safe, positive male. And so then guess what? I got my babies enrolled in chess. And so then it, there's moments too where I'm just kind of like, man, like my baby's starting to have crushes on people. Oh, I can't let her listen to this podcast, but she's starting to have crush on people. And I'm like, I don't know what to do or what to say, or because I'm going to get the perspective like, well, you can't date till you're 30. Okay. I know that I got to reach out to the village and be like, hey, Mr. Norm, when y'all having that chess lesson, can you talk a little bit about boys? Um, when you give your little life lessons. And so again, the importance of that village to be able to stand in the gap when grief comes up, whether you know that it's going to come up, whether you don't know that it's going to come up, having people strategically in place that you can fall back on and not have to be the strong one and not have to minimize what your emotional response is and not have to be the one that jumps into place to say, okay, I got to take a moment here. Can you? So I can just be. Oh, that's so great. Um, so many things you said there are so helpful. One thing is in order for, for your village to know, you got to tell your village. Some of us, we say, I got a village, but we don't talk to our village. So they don't know that birthdays are important because we keep it to ourselves. So the vulnerability with our village is so important. And when you talk about your girls, um, I remember early on in my son's life, you know, I was going through the separation and divorce from my first husband. And I have a really, really good friend, Dottie, who I don't even remember how it came about, but um, I just remember her calling me out on not, on me not letting my son see me cry. And her being like, 
hey, let, let's talk about that, <laughs> you know? Why would you not let him see you cry? And, and, and how many times we feel like, oh, no, I gotta be strong for my baby. That, that doesn't mean be strong, right? The number of people that I counsel when we go back through family of origin stuff and they go, I never saw my mama cry. I never saw my daddy cry. I ne right? Life full of trauma, well-known trauma. Ain't nobody convinced it ain't trauma. Whole family going through trauma. I ain't never seen my mama cry. She was strong. We really, really got to look at our definition of strength, y'all. We really do. We got to reevaluate what we are considering strong. And so ever since then, I'm like, daddy, you're right. And so I have not consciously I'm sure sometimes those old patterns have come up especially early but now I don't hide my tears and when my kids any of them go mommy are you crying and I go yes why can I give the reason I'm sad I'm hurt I don't know <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm confused and and what's so interesting is at first they look scared especially my son who had gone the longest without seeing it. He looked scared, but now, you know what I mean? Cause what I'll say to a client is, yeah. I'm, they, <laughs> I'm sorry, I might cry. I said, it's okay. You'll probably pee today too, right? It's, it's what we do. And we don't go around and be like, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna have to go urinate. Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Um, please forgive me. No, I'll be like, yo, <laughs> I gotta go to the bathroom, right? And so I wanna normalize tears as much as we normalize drinking water and, and going to the bathroom because it is what it is. And so now my children are not afraid of my tears. And it got to the point yes. where, you know, my husband, they didn't grow up crying. You know, tears, I could, they used to make, make them a little nervous. Oh, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. Like you don't come running to the bathroom when I'm peeing. You know, like, oh God, I hear water, are yeah. you okay? No, we're good. And now, you know, he's able to grieve a little more out loud. So then when the kids go, it's daddy crying, you can go, yes. Why? Whatever the answer, he's missing grandma today. He's yeah. sad or whatever that is. And man, the gift you give your kids when you yes. allow them to see the full range of human experience and emotion, then they ain't got to spend a lot of money coming to Dr. Raz and I when they get older, exactly. trying exactly. to just normalize what they what is a normal human experience. And so just being able to grieve, not purposely, but just grieve that it is a normal part of life, I think is such a great gift that we can give to our children and to each other. Oh, Dr. Ross, this is so good. Before we leave, I definitely want to talk a little bit about because where I get my most entertainment from you, sister, on Facebook is you talking about <laughs> navigating life, right? Like your social life and your dating life as a young widow with young children like we just don't think about I, I I know so many people don't think about it we have these two categories right you either <clears throat> I'll even be broad you're single or you're partnered but we don't think about how different being widowed single is than never married or never you know partnered single mm -hmm. so tell us what that experience is like because also I bet there are some people who like you don't get to do that nah you it's just gonna be you for the rest of your life and you like hold on Jean. hold on <laughs> oh let me go ahead and make some people mad too while we're saying this because there are people like that um and i think i've even lost some friendships because i decided to to kind of date again as well um but trying to um <laughs> solo parents and dating as a widow baby it is um hilarious when you think about it from like the the outside but it's a journey oh baby on the inside um yes and so my facebook friends they kind of hear the stories of my my dating experiences and trying to tiptoe and jump back into this water and what does that look like and that's a whole journey in itself 
you know, because you'll still be grieving no matter what stage you decide that if you want to date again. But then you're trying to learn how to date in a whole new world. I was married for 10 and a half years. And, you know, I have to apologize to my single friends. I'm like, no, it ain't that, it ain't that bad. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> trying to navigate this and then come out of the mindset. I had to come out of the mindset of being a wife. Well, I'm still trying to. And so because I'm ready, like when we start dating, you look at me, you wink at me. I'm like, okay, well, let's pick out our wedding colors. And do you want more kids? Like, should I prepare myself for my babies? Um, and what's your favorite meal? And so trying to like navigate this, like, whoa, 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 Rosalind, pull back. You got a date. But I'm like, let's get married. Um, ooh, and that whole journey. What's some specific questions because well, that you have for this? Too? I just think that that's good too, because I think dating after as a widow is even different than dating after divorce you know I mean there are just all of these components and I said the same thing look I feel like I was in the dating world for well eligible for the world looking in binoculars in the world for a year but listen I did online dating for probably exactly 32 days and I was like <laughs> okay nah like this this what is happening out here so here's one lesson that I I didn't know but now I'm like that see first of all that's the problem go if you're gonna do it I'm gonna need you to go ahead and pony up for the ones that make you pay e-harmony match mm -hmm. like that whole plenty of fish thing. like girl listen what kind of fish is these it was something out there I'm just saying um, so I was like, you know, this is crazy, but I also recognize that so many people had so many opinions. It's too soon. Uh, it ain't soon enough. Uh, mm -hmm. but what about this? Everybody has an opinion about what you should do. And that was just for divorce for me. That wasn't even mm -hmm. what I think people think are more sensitive, like uh, being a widow or a widower. So how do you navigate everybody who know what's best for your life or so they think? Mm -hmm. um, and I go back to what's going to work for me. And so some people don't understand that for me, even with the, the dating process, and I even shared this with my kids, um, that when mommy dates, you probably won't meet the person for a very long time. And people are like, well, why not expose them to your kids? Da, 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 da. I'm like, well, I have to be mindful of their grief process. Number one, they were complete and utter daddy's girls. And so a male figure, when they come into their life, you know, they're going to latch on. Like they, they latch on to uncles, they latch on to their grandfather and I have to protect them. And so I'm not trying to go through the process of let me, you know, make sure that if I'm going through this heartbreak, let me teach you how to go through that heartbreak. We'll get to that lesson in a different way in life, but I'm not trying to have that come through my dating experience. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be very mindful about, you know, even dating what brings up a grief experience in me and being mindful of that. Um, and so sometimes that goes against what people may think is best for me, but it's just kind of like, thank you for your opinion. That was nice, but I have to figure out how do I do this? What feels comfortable? What feels right for me to find my chapter two? And if you listen in chapter two, uh, I'm gonna get my information <laughs> at the end so you can inbox me. You be cracking me up. And I I just remember when we first became Facebook friends. Um there were, I don't know, and, and this is ongoing. You you had a series of repairs that needed to be done. <laughs> so it's like, oh, oh, and this man rang my doorbell, and I oh, thought, you know, and it's maintenance so man. But but what I also really appreciate is your humor and your levity. Mm -hmm. And, and being able to like really have fun with this experience. Mm -hmm. um, You'd be cracking me up too. Like, I don't even know how to do this, but you're like, yeah, I got someone so blocked from this message. I don't want my mama to read this one. So I blocked my mom. I'm like, yes. how you do that? <laughs> you know, and- My mom about and, to be shocked that I'm dating when I understand this. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> and, 
and just this <laughs> also this idea of like um uh and, and this will have to be a whole nother episode but and then the church and the church's response and the church people's response and Ooh. and just all of these different things so I really just genuinely appreciate you putting a different face to widowhood, a different voice, expanding our perspectives of what we might have even, and, and so much of what we think about it is unconscious. Like you would, if you were to ask a person, do you think only people over 68 and a half years old could be a widow? I think everyone would say, no, I don't believe that. But it's really what's underneath those implicit beliefs and biases that we have about it and so I think just having your voice and your face as another example of what that could be like is is super huge and so I thank you for that so is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we start wrapping up that we didn't get to talk about or that you think is important is an important takeaway and you know and you kind of touched a little bit on it but find the humor um, in your experience, you know, be able to balance out those emotions because there can be times, even, you know, just if we're talking about dating, like there can be a sadness too, where it's like, oh man, like I got to go through this again. This isn't where I was supposed to be in life. And then it has to be, you know what, Rosalind, you can't marry the maintenance man just because he said that you were beautiful and because you had to, you know, this was basically the only man that you saw during COVID when we were in lockdown. And so it's like, find the humor of that. Find, you know, the humor of, hey, there's this guy that I like and he said that his favorite dish was greens. Y'all, how do I make greens? Um, And so again, just being able to find what are the moments that you can laugh about your experience because through grief there are going to be different emotions that are going to to happen but you also have to see where's the beauty where's the rainbow where's the unicorns through all of this experience and be vulnerable allow yourself to be vulnerable in your grief and your journey and your healing and your community and you know allowing the opportunity to repurpose your pain that's one of my, my slogans with my private practice, but it's also my slogan for my life. You have to be able to repurpose your pain. And so I was excited to do this podcast because I also want to show people that I'm doing something with my pain too. It's not just sitting. And so I'm repurposing that. Um, and hopefully it blooms into something very beautiful for me but also to inspire other people to let their pain bloom into something beautiful. And that is beautifully said. We hear repurpose pain. And sometimes I think for some people, it feels um, like, how do I do that? Or, you know, it seems impossible, but we are a culture that repurposes. If you've ever put leftovers in a butter dish, you know about (laughs) repurpose. You got trash inside of your, your shopping, shopping bags you got from Kroger and Target, you know about repurposing. You refilled that water bottle instead of getting a whole new full one, you know about repurpose. We repurpose all the time. And I think it's amazing that you are dedicating so much of your life to helping people repurpose their pain. So uh, Dr. Roz, if someone heard something that you said and they're like, oh my God, um, I have questions or I just you know, want to know her or I want to come see her, how can people uh, find and get in touch with you? And so you can visit my website at www.brownbatty.com and that's B-R-O-W-N-B-E-A-T-T-Y. If something stood out and you're like, you know what, that's my therapist that I, I just heard. Call 513-616-5096. You can do a free 15 minute consultation with me to make sure it's a good fit. Or if you just know in your heart, like that's it, go on the website, click that book an appointment spot and you can be connected to me. Um, And if you wanna contact me for other reasons, because you think that you could be my chapter two. Um, Well, I won't give my personal handle because I put too many of my crazy um, (laughs) jokes on there, but email me, drrosdros at brownbaity.com. And really that's for anything. If you want to, you know, get to have some counseling, you want to be the next love of my life if you want me to do a presentation or speak more you know email me call me we'll we'll figure it out 
I love it. I love it. I love it. And I'm going to uh, kind of round us out like I do with all my guests and ask, what is a fun, interesting, or little known fact about yourself? I think, you know, I'm shy. I am extremely shy and people will be like, no, you're not. Um, but I am shy. Even when we were getting started with this podcast, like my stomach up here moving all funny. And anytime that I get up to speak, people are like, but you're so charismatic. I'm like, but do you understand? I'll be shaking in my boots. Um, and so, you know, I think that's an interesting fun fact that even out of all of this energy, it takes a moment to, to come out because I am very shy. Well, thank you for that. And I do think that most people wouldn't believe it, but I also think that that is kind of, thank you for showing us that just because you're uh, charismatic and high energy doesn't mean that everyone is, you know, that you're not shy. So I appreciate that. Dr. Roz, I thank you so much for taking some time to really just bring your beautiful energy and uniqueness to our podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and of course, to you, my guest. I never take it for granted that you spend time listening to our, our podcast. If you have suggestions for guests or content, reach out to me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. Don't forget we are on all the major social media outlets. Uh, don't forget if you have not already, head over to Instagram to our new Instagram page dedicated specifically for the podcast, the underscore LOL underscore pod. And go ahead and give us that five-star rating, write us a review, share the podcast with your friends and your family. Until we connect again, you all be well.